His name is Jesus. Just give him a shout. He's worthy of our praise. Thank you, Jesus. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I said thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. You know, in the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 20, it gives us 10 commandments. In the second commandment, he seems to, the author, Moses, seems to go into the most detail of all 10 of them. He tells us not to take up carved images or make idols, not to bow down to them or serve them. He says, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. But in verse 6 of Exodus 20, he says, but showing mercy to thousands, those who love me and keep my commandments. If you want a New Testament application for that, here's one. Romans 8, verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus sets me free from the law of, the sin, and de- of sin and death. When we're baptized, we're identifying with the death of Jesus Christ. And then when we come out of the water, we're identifying with the newness of life, rising with Him. Romans 6 tells us that knowing this, we can now put away the body of sins. I want to speak a word of knowledge over this house. All that was a preface to this word of knowledge. It was confirmed this morning in the prayer room leading up to the service. Some of us are living under the curse of generations gone by. Let me rephrase that. Some of us are still held bound by some of the curses of our forefathers. In our biological lineage, just as Exodus 20 spoke to generational cursing, and just as Romans 6 and Romans 8 speaks to generational blessing and release in the kingdom of God, God is putting his finger on some things that, some ways that we've been thinking, some mindsets, some heart sets that we've had for too long. The behavior of alcoholism that's been in generations rooted in a bondage of the heart. That darkness he wants to bring light to. That captivity he wants to break in the name of Jesus. He breaks the heavy yoke. He puts on his easy yoke. And it's freedom. The mindset that this will never change My grandmother did this. My great-grandfather did this. My parents did this. The mindset that I will never succeed in marriage because none of my forebearers succeeded in marriage. The, The mindset that I will never succeed as God wants me to succeed. I'll never be able to identify as a true son, a true daughter of my Father in heaven that breaks in the presence of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ, if you let it, serves as a permanent and eternal separation between those generational curses and the life that he's called you to live in. It's not just living in him, it's thriving in him. It's not just surviving and and persevering through generational curses. It's being set free breaking in, breaking through, and breaking beyond in the power of Jesus Christ. In case you missed it, I'm not using wise and persuasive words. It's the unction of the Holy Spirit. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that is the power of God to salvation. It's not words coming out of a preacher's mouth. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that sets us free. Some of us need to be baptized again. And I'm not sure if Dave or Dad are 
ready to baptize again today, but I want to be obedient to the Holy Spirit. Maybe after this service, you just need to be baptized. You need to identify with the death of a generational curse or maybe multiple generational curses and rise to newness of generational blessing out of the waters and newness of life. In obedience to the Holy Spirit, I'm going to make that offer this afternoon after church. Water baptism available. You're just going to come forward. I'm going to invite you to come forward. We're going to take care of it. But I'm also going to leave the waters open next weekend as well. Maybe you need some time to think about it. It's a big deal. Make no mistake about it. The Holy Spirit is making it clear. You can be set free. It is His will to set us free from the bondages that hold us back. You no longer have to be addicted. You no longer have to be limited in the mindsets of this world. Carnal reasoning, thinking here in my mind and reasoning through problems is enmity against the Lord, Romans 8, 7. It's hostily indifferent. It's an enemy of the kingdom of God. He wants to put down those enemies, the carnal reasoning, and set us free in him. Lord, we thank you that when we come to you, you give us newness of life. You breathe in fresh, holy inspiration. You take that which is old and you make it all better. You make it all new. And you make a way for us to be with you. Emmanuel, God with us. Intangible expression the reality of it, day in and day out. God, I thank you for speaking to generational blessing today. And we just call forth, we just call forth that which you've intended for us even before we were born, even before we were a sparkle in our parents' eyes. You had generational blessing in your perfect foreknowledge for us. May your truth be revealed as we go through the rest of this service. And may your truth make us free and free indeed. In the name of Jesus, we just thank you, Lord. We praise you. Hallelujah. 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 Amen. I'm going to release the kids to Kids Church. And as they're going, I just want to encourage you to say hi to somebody. Tell them Jesus, he who Jesus sets free is free indeed. Amen. Bless you. Brothers and sisters, our sister has a, uh, a word of encouragement for us. <laughs> oh, as some of you have been praying for so devoutly know my daughter has been very, very ill. A few weeks ago, they called and said, prepare yourself for the worst. She has absolutely no hope. Last night, I was able to speak to her on the telephone. It'll be a while before she's thoroughly healed because... She's been so sick that she's lost movement, and it's hard for her to breathe. But they told me I'd never hear her again, and I have. Praise Jesus. And just as a side note about the breaking of curses, this, my beloved daughter, I adopted her when she was 12. So the only blood that matters is the blood of Jesus. Praise God. Amen. I, I'm just going on the record as saying that is the second resurrection from the dead this house has experienced in as many years, in the last two years. And, and, and we may think that just because some machines are keeping someone alive, that they're still alive. I'm just saying without the machines, she would have passed away. The doctors had all agreed that there was no hope, and God brought her back. Just like Cookie testified. It's the blood of Jesus. Amen. Praise God. Thank you, Lord. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Lord, all the ways that you want to bring new life to our physical illnesses in the healing miracle that Jesus works. We just bless that to our, the wounds in our souls, to our spirits. 
God, your miracle work be done in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Um, Jeremiah is going to speak today. <laughs> he used to say, my name is Jeremiah. The D is silent, but I am not. And I am grateful he is not silent. I'm also grateful for his journalism. He has a gift, and he's educated in journalism, and he goes about the scripture. He investigates it. He looks through. He asks the who's, the what's, the when's, the where's, and it comes out in his preaching, and his preaching always brings forth great gems, things that I hadn't seen before, portions of scripture I hadn't ever put together. So, brother, you are anointed of the Holy Spirit, and we just want to pray for you as you bring the word. Thank you, Lord, for the word that you have deposited in my brother our brother. We thank you that it is coming forth in a way that prospers for that thing which you intended it to to prosper in, for it not to return void, for it to go deep in our hearts and produce everything you want. We bless God our ears to be open and our eyes as well to everything you're speaking and everything you're showing. In the name of Jesus, amen. 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 Thank you. Uh, So I, I love that we have this hot tub here like full time now. This is, this is my favorite thing. I want to I wanna preach to you today a, a story that, is, that probably should be familiar to most of you. Uh, we're going to be in John chapter 4. But before we get to John chapter 4, we have to you know, at least mention in John chapter 3, since we baptized today, Jesus and his disciples went into the countryside and they were baptizing people. And in John 4, it says Jesus wasn't doing the baptizing. His disciples were. And when the Pharisees found out, Jesus decided that it was time to go. So if you have a Bible, uh, open it up to John chapter 4. I'll have most of the scriptures here, but you know how overheads can be. And in this story, again, as I said, Jesus learned the Pharisees found out that he and his disciples were baptizing people. And so he says, now's the time to go. And so he passes through Samaria. He leaves Judea, and he heads home to Galilee. And he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar. And John tells us that Sychar is near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. So, right, the who, the where, the why, where are we? We're we're in Samaria. We know exactly where we are because John tells us that this is near the field that, that Jacob had given his son. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, which is noon. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. So where where are we? Here we are. Jesus was traveling from Jerusalem. There was a festival. Uh, He and his disciples had left the festival. They were baptizing people, and he decided it was time to go home. And Jerusalem's in the south, and Galilee, where he wants to be, is in the north. And, and the, the good Jews would go around, right? They, they wouldn't go through Samaria. They would go around. John says that they had to pass through Samaria, and I don't think John was right. I think we know that Jesus chose to. Jesus chose to go through Samaria. They came to the village of Sychar, which is here in the middle, uh, right between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. We'll talk about that later. Sychar was a a village that was built on the ruins of an ancient city called Shechem. And to get through Samaria to Nazareth, they stopped here at Sychar, built on the ruins of Shechem. And Shechem mattered. Now, why are we we talking about history? We're going to talk about history today. And the reason that we're going to do that is you can read the 40 verses. This story takes 40 verses in the book of John, chapter 4, and you can read it. And you can just blow through it. It might take you five minutes to read it. And you might think that was a neat story. But if you stop and you ask the questions and you figure out, wait a minute, why are we here? Who, who's talking? The context matters. And when you understand the context that John was writing in and that the people John was writing to understood, the story opens up in maybe a different way than you've heard before. So Jesus stops and this woman says to him eventually, and we'll get to it, she says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And I hear in her voice uh, that she's proud of where she lives. She's a Samaritan. Here comes this Jew, 
And they have a little exchange, and she says, well, our fathers worshipped on that mountain right there. Here's the mountain. This is an old photo. That's the mountain. That's Mount Gerizim. And that village, back in the 1800s, that's the village that was there. Why did Jesus choose this location to have this exchange? He could have found any Samaritan anywhere in the world, but he wanted to have this conversation here in Shechem because Shechem was a place to both the Jews and the Samaritans of celebration and blessing. Back in Genesis 14, Abram, God says, follow me and I'll show you a land and I'll give you this land. And the place that Abram comes to is Shechem. Shechem is the very first place that God promises Abraham, to your offspring I will give this land. Look around. This is where I'm going to give all of your descendants. A few chapters later, God's changed Abram's name to Abraham. And he asks Abraham to offer his one and only son Isaac. And the Samaritans, this woman speaking to Jesus, the Samaritans believed that this happened. The mountain was Mount Gerizim. This is where God said, don't kill Isaac, right? I will bless every nation of the earth through Isaac. To her, that happened right here on Mount Gerizim. In Genesis 33, Jacob either builds his own altar or he rebuilds the altar of Abraham to commemorate the fact that he met with God and God changed his name. He wasn't just the God of my father. He was my God. He's the God of Israel. He changed my name right here in Shechem. In the book of Leviticus, God decides that Shechem would be one of six cities of refuge in the land where people who accidentally killed someone could go and be safe in the city. It was a place where you could go to be safe, Shechem. In Joshua chapter 8, it describes uh, a ceremony of blessings and cursings, and it's really cool. And there's, it talks, it's talked about in Leviticus, and it's talked about in Joshua. And they come to Shechem, and the entire, all of the, the tribes of Israel build an altar for the Lord, and then they split up. And half of the tribes go to Mount Ebal in the north, and half of the tribes go to Mount Gerizim in the south. And the tribes on the north look across this valley and they shout out all of the curses that'll befall them if they don't follow the covenant of God. And from the other side of the valley, they hear the curses and they say, Amen! And then from Mount Gerizim, they shout back all of the blessings that we'll get if we follow the covenant. And on the other side, they say, Amen! And they have this, this great celebration, this great ceremony where, they, where God has asked them, like, know it. All of you need to know. These are the bad things that are going to come. These are the good things. It's up to you. And that happens here at Shechem. In Joshua 24, you probably have heard this. If you've ever walked through a church, you've probably heard it or seen it on a t-shirt or if you've been to a Christian's house, they have it on the wall. It says, choose you this day who you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That happens at Shechem, right? This is an important place. This is an important place of commitment to God. This is an important place of celebration, and this is an important place of blessing for both the Jews and the Samaritans. So why did Jesus choose to to do it? Because of its history. He could have had this. He could have found a Samaritan on the street in Jerusalem Instead, he chose to go to Samaria and have this conversation. John mentions uh, in one of the verses here that uh, Jacob's well is there. It's still there. Like Jacob's well, you could go to, they built a Greek Orthodox church on top of it. But like I, I hear John, like as the narrator of the story, like that he feels the history. He's pointing out like all of this is where Jacob was. This is where Joseph's field. This is, here's the well. It's all still there. So for Jews, it was a place of celebration. But for the Samaritans, it was the holiest place of all. Like this is their temple was built on Mount Gerizim. As Jesus and the woman continue to have their conversation, she says to him, how is it that you, a Jew, are talking and asking me, a woman from Samaria, for a drink? parentheses, for Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans. This is uh, kind of an understatement. (laughs) Kind of. 110 BC, just 
a little over 100 years before this story takes place, the Jewish army comes through and they burn Shechem to the ground and they, they destroy the Samaritan temple. So I think Jesus got off a little light for her to say, why are you asking me for a drink? There's still enmity here. They're still angry with one another. Why did Jesus choose this location? Because Shechem was a place of celebration and blessing that became a place of division and disappointment. How did it become a place of division? Back in the Old Testament, in 1 Kings 11, Solomon has turned away from the Lord. He's broken the covenant. Why did he do that? He did that to make his wives happy. He had a thousand wives. They all worshipped idols. Most of them worshipped idols. I have one wife. Yay. <laughs> right? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it's been uh, 15, 15? This is coming up on 16. I'm still right. right. It's been 15 years. There are many things that I don't want to do that I'm willing to do to make my one wife happy. Right? Solomon has a thousand. And I'm... <laughs> I'm not, right, right? Like, I'm not condoning what he's done. I'm, God is clearly mad. It's underlined here. You broke my covenant. I'm not saying I, like, it's, it's not okay, but I understand, right, the pressure that he might have been under. Because sometimes it's hard to say no. But God says, since you have not kept my covenant, I am going to take the kingdom away from your son. And in the very next chapter, in 1 Kings 12, the entire nation of Israel comes together, and where do they come together? They come together at Shechem. And it's supposed to be a celebration where all of the 12 tribes of Israel come and they coronate their king. And what happens is they come and they say, New king, your father put some pretty heavy taxes on us. Does anyone relate to wanting lower taxes? Right? And uh, Rehoboam does not respond well. He responds like, to say the least, he says some things that I can't, I can't say because there are kids in the room about his father. And he says, if you thought you had it bad before, just you wait. I am going to make it harder on you. And so what do they do? They say, we're done. They break the covenant. They break faith with the king of, of Judah, with the tribe of David. And they say, what portion do we have in David? What, we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. The prophet Samuel had prophesied that David's kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom. There would always be one of David's descendants on the throne. And so when they reject Rehoboam, it's not about the political kingdom. They are saying, we're done. We have, we're going we're to go our way, and we're going to do our thing, and you can go do whatever it is that you do in Jerusalem. But we don't want to have anything to do with you anymore. And from that point on, if you read the, the prophets in the Bible... They, they talk about two different, they talk about the house of Israel and they talk about the house of Judah. And they have these, they're, they're treated separately. They're now hostile kingdoms. The, the army of Judah marches north to conquer these 10 tribes and some prophet that you've never heard of before and never hear of again comes out and says, stop, go home. God says, this is from me. And they all go, okay. Like, all right, sure. Like this is, it was foretold. Like, it, like I can't imagine a marching army that says, oh, oh, all right, sure. It's, just, it's not a political thing. This is religious. We're done. We've broken faith. There is no covenant. The covenant that you have is not the covenant that we have anymore. It happened at Shechem. Jesus chose Shechem because it was a place of great disappointment and division. And the Samaritans were a people who were born of schism, of fracture, of division. Are you a Samaritan today? Maybe you were hurt by someone in authority over you. Maybe it was a father or a grandfather. Maybe it was a teacher. Maybe it was a pastor. Maybe you had a legitimate grievance. The ten tribes, I think they had a legitimate grievance. They handled it poorly. They broke faith. They said, and maybe you've said something like this. If that's who your God is, then I want nothing to do with that God. 
Then you made your own declaration at Shechem, just like the Samaritans did. Back to John. The woman at the well points at the mountain and she says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. Now, what did she mean by that? We got into that a little bit. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I am I'm really tickled at the idea that this woman at the well points at the mountain and she says, this is the mountain where Abraham offered Isaac. And she's telling Jesus, right? Like, don't, isn't it like, you feel that a little bit? He's like, oh, lady. <laughs> if you only knew. He does say that. He says, if you only knew. How does Jesus answer her when she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus says in verse 22, you worship what you don't know, which is such a crazy thing to say, right? If the Samaritans are this, these 10 tribes, why does Jesus say you worship a God you don't even know? Again, we need some historical context. Back to the book of Kings. In 2 Kings chapter 12, a shorter history of the kingdom of Israel in the north King so-and-so did evil in the sight of the Lord and worshipped idols. God sent his prophets, and the king ignored them. Doesn't matter what king it was. It's the same story over and over and over until finally God lets the kingdom of Israel get destroyed. And the king of Assyria comes, and he carries the Israelites away to Assyria, and he resettles them on the far end of his kingdom. He says, that's enough of you. You're coming with me, and we're going to put you here where you can't cause me any trouble. But he doesn't want to leave the land vacant. So he imports other people that he'd conquered from other nations. And we can you read 2 Kings 12 if you want to know all the cities he brought them from. They're all listed. But what's important is he brought them there and they came and they brought their idols with them. And so God sent lions, the Bible says, in to kill them because they set up their idols and they worshiped their idols on his holy land. And so they complained to the king of Assyria, they say that the God of this country is angry with us. We need to know how to make him less angry with us. So the king of Assyria sends one priest back to teach them the fear of the God of the land. He doesn't teach them the covenant that they were supposed to be following, the blessings and the cursings. He teaches them just enough to teach them the God who lives in this 20 square miles, this is how you get him off your back. Read 2 Kings. What the Samaritans had was not God's covenant. What they had was a superstition. They had their idols. They had their own limited understanding of who God was. And that was all they had. So when Jesus says, you worship a God that you don't know, what he means is that this place used to be a place of covenant, and now it isn't anymore. What he means is, this place was a place of division and fracture, and you brought your superstitions. Instead of seeking the God of the universe, you've treated him like he's the God of these mountains, and you've set him up in a limited way. You don't understand the God that you're worshiping. When you finally understand, he says, the hour is coming when you won't worship him on this mountain. We won't worship him on the mountain in Jerusalem. You will worship him everywhere. And one thing that I want to add that doesn't really fit, but I want to add it here. The Jews lost sight of that first promise that God made Abraham and the second promise that God made Abraham, that every nation of the world would be blessed through his offspring. Every nation. And so the king of Assyria has helped them bless these nations by bringing them in and resettling them there. Right? So whether one day, the Bible teaches us, one day, every nation, every tribe, every tongue will worship before the Father, worship before the throne in heaven. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. The New Testament teaches us. And so for you, this is a bonus. It's a question of how often that will happen. Will it happen for them one time on Judgment Day where the, the terrible realization comes true for them? 
or will it be for eternity? And that's what it should have been. The Jews should have had this perspective at their neighbors from the nations, but they didn't. The Samaritans had a limited understanding of God. God was superstition. Their Bible only contained their Torah, the first five books of Moses, because the prophets that God sent over and over and over again had nothing but doom and gloom. And who wants that, right? Do you have a limited understanding of God today? When you read the hard parts of your Bible, do you reflect and change? Or do you get out your scissors and say, that's not for me. No, no. I signed up for the uh, blessing package, not the tribulation package. Last Sunday, Pastor Josh uh, tells a verse about, uh, about Peter. Jesus says, one day you're going to be carried by the hand, someone else is going to dress you, and they're going to take you somewhere where you don't want to go. And John says, Jesus said this to let everyone know by what way Peter's death would glorify God. Right? I, I didn't sign up for that, right? I, was like, I signed up for that my life glorifies God. What do you mean by what way his death glorifies God? And when you run into those hard truths in the Bible... Like, those hard truths aren't supposed to chip off the Bible. They're supposed to chip things off of you, right? The Samaritans had a limited understanding of God. Do you? Have you ever said, no loving God would let blank happen? There are so many blanks. There are more blanks than I could ever come up with. No loving God would have taken this person from me. No loving God, no God of mine would have let my wife leave me. Pain and suffering and disappointment. When you read Psalm 23 and you get to verse 1 and it says, The Lord is my shepherd. I will lack for no good thing. And you say, that's the one. And I'm done. What do you do? When you find yourself in the valley of the shadow of death, you are ill-equipped to be there. You don't know. You have limited your understanding of God by limiting your understanding of Scripture. You stop at verse 1, I'm here to be blessed, and when you have trouble, when you have tribulation, you are a house that's built on sand. I guarantee, no, that's not us, Right? We would, that's not us. We would never, right? No, it's them, right? It's the people who didn't come to church today. Those are the people who have limited their understanding of God. It's the people online who didn't want to come. That's who it is. That's who I'm, I'm not preaching to me. I guarantee you that the people that you meet every day are like the Samaritans. If it's not us, It's the people that you work with who have a limited understanding of God. And you say, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, me too. Okay. And they say the same word, but we mean in action something completely different. People who have been hurt by Christians and reject their God and go looking to make their own God. People who have been hurt by the church. People who think that just understanding this much is enough. And what they end up with is superstition, like the Samaritans. Moving on in John chapter 4, Jesus continues his answer. I've skipped over the verses where Jesus says that he, if you you only knew who I was, you'd ask me for a drink. But he continues and he says, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Both Jews and Samaritans would have agreed on, at the very least, that worship was performing the actions that they had been taught in the location that they had been taught the same way every time. This is worship. This is you get this kind of sheep or this kind of ram or this kind of bird 
and you do this at the temple and you have worshipped. But Jesus completely rejects that premise as worship. He says that worship is not a physical action that you do. It is worship in spirit and in truth that comes from you because God is not interested, the Old Testament teaches us, God is not interested in sacrifice. He's interested in obedience. If you do it fervently, if you do it earnestly, and if you do it at the temple, then you've done it right. And Jesus says, you're wrong. And I love this idea. And I almost wanted to preach an entire sermon about this one verse where God says that the Father is seeking worshipers like this. And I have this fantastic picture in my mind of divine hide and seek. In the Old Testament... Jews and Samaritans would have both agreed that this is in the Bible. In Deuteronomy 4, it says, you, it's your turn, you seek God, go find him. And when you seek him with all your heart and all your soul, then you'll find him. In Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah is writing to all the exiles. And he says, you will seek him and you will find him when you seek him with all of your heart. That's you. That's on you. You have to use all of this to go find him. There is a problem with seeking God in the Old Testament. And Paul reminds us of that by quoting Psalm 14. The psalmist writes, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Humankind, it turns out, is awful at this game of divine hide and seek. We're not good at it because we can't seek after a perfectly pure and holy God with our whole hearts. Our hearts are divided. Our hearts are deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know them? God changed the rules of divine hide and seek. Isn't that good news? (laughs) Jesus Christ changed the rules by joining our team. He is the only one who was capable of finding God. He was the only one capable of seeking God wholly, purely, completely. He's the only one who could be both the seeker and the finder. And when you become reconciled to God through what Jesus did for us on the cross, then you can put on Christ. You become a new creation something new, and you're able to find God through Jesus. Right? Jesus tells us time and again in his sermons, in his parables, in his entire ministry, that God is interested in finding now. God is my turn to seek. In Luke 15, he says, I'm the one who goes and leaves the 99 sheep to find the one sheep. He doesn't say, I wait for that sheep to seek me, and when he seeks me with his pure, whole heart, he will find me. He says, I leave heaven, and I put on flesh, and I go out and I find it, and then I bring it back. Amen. God is seeking you. If you have not been found, then he's seeking you today. And tomorrow, he wants to be found by you, and he wants to be found by you in the person of Jesus Christ, by what Jesus did on the cross for you, by dying a substitutionary death, by taking the penalty that you deserve on himself to clear the way for you to finally find the Father. Jesus says, that you will worship him in spirit and in truth. He says to this woman, you worship a God that you don't know. And he said that because they weren't in covenant. And he chose Shechem to teach this lesson because he saw a place that was a place of covenant and blessing. And he saw a place that became a place of disappointment and division. And he came to heal the division. And he came to bring them back. The Samaritans are the first fruits of that later on in this passage. 
He says you will worship in spirit and in truth. And worship is the overflow of your heart. When it is in obedient, righteous orientation with God. When you are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. When you are lined up perfectly with him. Your heart overflows. The Old Testament gives us examples of worship. She brought it up. Abraham and Isaac. God said, offer me your son. And Abraham says, we will go worship on that mountain. Worship means sacrifice. It means obedient sacrifice. Job got the news that his servants, his, all of his livestock and all of his children had been carried away and killed. And the Bible records that he fell on his face and he worshipped and he blessed the God who gives and takes away. In 2 Samuel it says that when Bathsheba's son was sick, David fasted and he prayed. And when his son died, he got up and he washed himself. And he went into the temple and he worshipped. These things only make sense when you see them as the abundant overflow of their hearts. David didn't he wasn't sad, and then he got over it. He was still sad, but he went into the temple, into the presence of his God, and he worshipped. And for us, a little New Testament application, Jesus makes the way for us. He, he allows us to be reconciled to God. And it, the Bible records that when he was raised from the dead, when he died, the veil in the temple that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of us, was torn into. That now, through Jesus, we can enter into that presence. Where you need to be so that your heart overflows. This river of living water, this fountain that Jesus talked about in the verses that you should read in John 4. That's worship in spirit and in truth. It begins with reconciliation to God. And God foretold this in Jeremiah 31. He makes a declaration about what the new covenant would be. This next covenant would be a covenant of worship. He says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people and they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. It isn't about following the rules it isn't about sacrifice as it was prescribed in the right location. It is about the one God putting his spirit within your heart and writing his law inside your heart. Not a law of sin and death, but the law of life. The first half of God's new covenant of worship is the Holy Spirit. The game of hide-and-seek ends when you're found. Right? It's so simple, it's dumb. The game ends when you're found. But that's not the game anymore. Jesus put on flesh, and he found us, and it says that he's given to us the ministry of reconciliation. First, we are reconciled to God, but God also wants to reconcile the world to himself through Jesus Christ. So what does he do? He makes you and me ambassadors on his behalf to go into the world and say, God wants to be reconciled to you. Be reconciled to God. We found the way to find him. Reconciliation is the first half. The second half is this. At the end of his life, or toward the end of his life, John is reflecting on a lifetime of walking with Jesus. And I'm sure he's thinking about this scene in John 4. And he writes in his first epistle, We love God because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, who he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. True worship, John says, 
is not just to love God. It is the abundant overflow of a heart that is in correct orientation with God. When you love God, then you must love your brothers. You must And it turns out that this sermon that Jesus preaches this woman at the well in a really sneaky way isn't something new. They're the two great commandments. What must I do? Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. It's the same message taught in a different place with different words and different names. True worship, that is worship in spirit and in truth, is the ministry of reconciliation. It is loving God and loving neighbors, loving brothers. It is, as we've heard time and time again from this pulpit, loving the person right in front of you. That's what it means to worship in spirit and in truth. Our worship of God, the righteous overflow, the bubbling, spontaneous flow from our heart, begins because God first loved us and it continues in that we love him back and we love other people enough to serve them. Amen? In a moment, we're going to take communion. If you did not pick up your handy prepackaged communion elements, there are some available in the foyer. But before we take communion, in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us that we need to reflect. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For if anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Our first concern when we come to the communion table is the first half of worship. Am I in the right orientation with God? And just like worship begins with God and continues with service to others, Paul also asks that we reflect on our orientation with one another. In 1 Corinthians 10, he says, Because there is one bread, we who are many, or who are one body, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. I'd like you to open your bread and let's ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us because he says he will. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Ask God to search your heart. Is there any wicked way? How am I out of alignment with you? me, O God, and know my heart. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this bread that you said was your body broken for us. Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts. Speak truth. Speak life. That we can come into oneness with you that when we partake of this bread, we do so in a worthy manner, worthy of the sacrifice for us. Thank you, Jesus, for the work on the cross and for choosing to have your body broken for us. 
we thank you this morning as we partake together. The Bible says that he took the cup after they broke the bread and then he said this is the blood of the covenant the new covenant Lord Jesus we thank you that you came that you put on flesh to find us who are lost We thank you for the blood that you shed. For bearing our sins on yourself on the cross. And making a way for us to come to the throne of God. To finally seek and find. Holy Spirit, as we partake in the fruit of the vine together, I ask that you would bind our hearts together. That we would be one with one another as Jesus is one with the Father. Thank you for the work of the cross, and thank you for your blood. Let's drink. Jesus chose Shechem to have this conversation about true worship because Shechem was a place of celebration and blessing. Shechem was a place of division and disappointment and he came to heal those divides, to seek and save those who were lost. The Samaritans were a people who were born out of hurt and disappointment. Have you been separated from God because of some way that you were hurt? If so, we would love to pray with you today. The Samaritans were a people who worshipped a God that they did not understand. Is that you today? Do you have a limited understanding of who God is? We would love to pray with you today. They worshipped God out of a superstition, not in spirit and not in truth. If that's you today, we would love to pray with you. The Samaritans were a people who were lost. If that's you today, we would love to pray with you. Holy Spirit, thank you for the time that we can spend together. Thank you for opening your word to us, Lord Jesus. I ask that you would continue to speak as we go on from this place. Draw us into oneness with you and allow us to see the ways that we are Samaritans, ourselves, and open our eyes to see the way that our neighbors may be, the way that they need you in spirit and in truth. Thank you for giving us the ministry of reconciliation today. Us to you and you to the world. As we go, I just ask that your Holy Spirit would be alive to us in a new and a fresh way. That we would go into the world and say, be reconciled to God. In Jesus' name. If you'd like prayer, we've got time for that. Otherwise, I think there are sandwiches in the lobby. <laughs> Who can say no to that? God bless your day.